Good morning. What a blessing it is to be worshiping corporately as a body of believers in the house of the Lord. Please open your Bibles to Ephesians 6, verse 17. Open your Bibles to Ephesians 6, verse 17, where we'll actually begin and end this morning. We're going to jump right in to the text because we have a lot to get through. So Ephesians 6, 17, and we're going to finally finish up our section on the armor of God, and we're on our final piece of the armor of God this morning, and God's word says this, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. As we begin this morning, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we praise you, we honor you, we give you glory. We recognize there's no one like you, God. Help us to have a high, great, lofty view of you. Help us to have a small view of ourselves, recognizing that you are so great and mighty. And we are so small, but yet you think of us. You made us in your image. We thank you, Father. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy, Father. We ask as we dive into your word that you give us eyes to see. Help us to see our blind spots. Help us as a church to be more biblically based, more than where we're at now, Father, because we want to honor you so well. But help us to be biblically based with humility and love. We love you. We praise you. Through your son we pray. Amen. Well, we discussed last week the helmet of salvation. So we are going on to the sword of the Spirit, which Paul says is the word of God. And I have a few quick observations. If I had four hours, I'd probably go through these longer than just quick observations, but I don't have a lot of time. So the first observation that I want to look at from Ephesians six seventeen is this. The sword is the only offensive weapon we have as believers. Let me say that again. The sword is the only offensive weapon we have as believers. The word of God is what the Christian has in his or her repertoire to stand against the schemes of the devil, it says here in Ephesians. But the second observation, which is sort of surprising to me, is this. The sword is not our sword, but the Holy Spirit's sword. Let me say that again. The sword is not our sword, but it's the Holy Spirit's sword. We don't say, I'm going to get my sword out, or I need to get my sword out of my... But we say, no, the Bible says that we are carrying the Holy Spirit's sword. The Word of God is the Holy Spirit, our verse says. But third observation is this. The Holy Spirit fights Satan, the flesh, and the world with Scripture. The Holy Spirit fights Satan, the flesh, and the world with Scripture. That means there is real power in the Word of God because it is the Holy Spirit's weapon. When we examine ourselves with the Word of God, when we counsel others with with Scriptures, when we teach our children God's Word, when we humbly confront someone with the Word of God, when we encourage others with Scripture, when we open up God's word, when we read it, when it is taught on, when it is being preached in a sermon 
you can be sure that the Holy Spirit's sword is unleashed on hearts and minds. Amen. God's word is a sword of the spirit. So what is the Greek word used here for God's word in this section? Because usually the Greek word used when we're talking about the word of God is the word logos. For example, in John 1, 1, why don't you turn that with me to John 1, 1, the gospel, John 1, 1. That's the big John. Little John is first and second and third John. We're talking about the big John, which is the gospel of John. And John 1, 1 here uses logos three times. <clears throat> it says this, in the beginning was the word. Which in the Greek, that word is logos. And the word logos was with God. And the word, again, the Greek logos was God. So this word logos is here in John 1, 1 to describe that Christ is God. He, his words are his as God himself. Christ's words, think about this, are superior above all other words. In their entirety, all scripture, the logos is beyond words because they are beyond human knowledge. They're beyond all creation. They're God's words. But when we look at our passage in Ephesians 6, 17, we see that Paul uses a different word other than logos when he speaks of God's word. Let's go back to Ephesians 6, 17, and we're going to look at the second half of it, of verse 17. Which says this, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The term, the Greek term for word here is rhema, which means a word or a phrase or a statement or a passage of scripture. Paul is saying that each specific word, each specific section, each specific passage of scripture is powerful. It is the rhema, the word of God is the sword of the spirit. Paul uses the Greek word here, rhema, instead of logos to describe the word of God because he is being specific trying to get us to understand that each word, each passage is powerful within themselves. We are called to use the rhema, the word, to competently counsel others and ourselves in the word of God with the issues of life that we're facing as believers. We'll use specific passages to tackle various issues that we and others are facing. It's not good enough to generalize God's word or to paraphrase God's word when we're counseling others. For example, when we have devotions at our house at night with the children, I often ask them various questions of the story that we're talking about. And sometimes, sometimes my children daydream. They're two and four. They sometimes daydream and they're thinking over things as I'm reading the story. And all of a sudden I'll ask them a question. And when they don't know the answer... They give me, what would I say, their educated guesses, generic answers, like, for example, Luke, for example, who was in the ark with Noah? He said, God, I wasn't asking you to actually say anything, but he said, God, right? No, that's not really the answer I was looking for. It's God, but when he doesn't know the answer, he gives me this generic answer, but actually, no, well, God was in the ark with Noah, but that's not what I was looking for. 
Ay, ay, ay. Okay, I'm going to get myself in trouble here. This guy's speaking heresy. God's not everywhere. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, they, they have these answers down where they don't know the answer. It must be God, Jesus, grace, or sin. That covers all their bases is what they think in the answers that they give me. And so often it seems Christians mishandle the word of God this way because they have not made God's word a priority in their life. They are not prepared to help others or even themselves from God's word when tragedies, when trials, when problems arise. So when someone comes up to them and says, my life is really falling apart, or man, I really am struggling with depression, or man, I really have anger issues, often the Christian responds with some type of paraphrase of some popular verse like Romans 8, 28, and they say something like, well, brother, you know, God will work out all your struggles for your good. Family church, this is not the way we handle God's word. Paraphrasing passages, sloppy generalizations, or pulling verses out of context doesn't help anybody. If anything, it misrepresents Scripture, which means we are misrepresenting God at that moment. We must be wise in the way we handle God's Word. We must apply appropriate passages of Scripture to the problems that we and others are facing, which leads to point number one. We are called to use God's word with skill and precision. Point number one says we are called to use God's word with skill and precision. How precise, how skillful are we with God's word this morning? How do we handle the word of God when we're in a trial? When we're in a struggle, when we have a problem, what about when others that we know are in crisis? Are we opening up God's word and counseling them biblically? Because that's what we're called to do. What about when we're tempted to be controlled by worry? What about when fear is gripping our heart? What about when dark clouds come rolling in the form of depression? Where do we turn in the scriptures for help and hope? What about when we're arguing with our spouse? Where do we turn in the word of God to help us with the conflict we're facing to find resolution? What about when a loved one passes away? What should we be meditating on in God's word when we feel such a void, such, such an emptiness? The person we love so much is now gone. Where do we turn in God's word? This is where the rubber meets the road. Brothers and sisters, real life is where we're called to actually live out the God's word. And Satan tries to tempt us. How do we use God's word to combat the evil one? Similarly, Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan as well. In Luke 4, verses 1 through 8, it'll actually be on the screen, but we're going to actually see how Jesus handled Satan. Luke 4, 1 through 8, says this. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Go figure. 
The devil said to him, if you are, you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and in him only shall you serve. So Christ was led by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by Satan. We see God's sovereignty and his providence all over this one, right? How did Christ combat Satan's temptations? Did Jesus start throwing fireballs at Satan? Or shooting out laser beams out of his eyes at Satan? Or call down a legion of angels to destroy Satan? No, Jesus does none of the above. Jesus says... It is written, Satan. God's word says, Satan. Jesus starts quoting Bible verses at Satan. And it's not like Jesus used any verses. Jesus do didn't do what many folks do today. Let me close my eyes. I'm going to open up the word of God. And wherever my finger lands, that's what the Holy Spirit's leading me to. It must not be really now. That's not right. Let's try that again. No, that's not what he did here, right? That's not what he did. He went right to the passages that actually spoke to the problem that he was facing, the temptation, the deception that Satan was trying to use on him at that moment. That's how familiar, that's how much Christ knew the word. That's what we're called to. Are we precise and skillful in the word of God? Can we turn to places in the scriptures to help others biblically? Dr. J. Adams, the great biblical counselor and theologian, says this, God's word is as useful as for daily living as if God himself were with you, audibly answering your questions day by day. God's word is like having God himself right with us as if he was sitting across from us telling us what we should do here and answering our daily life struggles that we're going through. His word's right there for us to feast on. Which leads to point number two. We counsel ourselves and others biblically. Point number two says we counsel ourselves and others biblically. Why should we counsel ourselves and others biblically? Why should we come from the biblical standpoint? Well, as believers, we recognize that God's word is sufficient for all of life's issues. Let me ask us this morning, what competes with God's word when it comes to helping people with fear? with worry, in, with stress, anger, addictions, maybe marital problems, etc. What competes with God's word? And the obvious answer is psychology. Psychology used to mean the study of the soul, is what, which, is, which is quite ironic because we believe that God's word is the only thing which can transform the heart of man. The only thing. But I'm sad to say that we have a lot of churches and pastors who say things like, we want to try to help our people. We want to counsel them. But when the problem just seems to get too deep, 
When the problem gets too serious, well, you know what? We're going to have to send them to the experts. We're going to have to outsource them to someone else because it's above our heads, obviously. We've got to send them to the psychologist down the road. So let me ask you. Let me get this straight. The secular psychologist who follows models of therapy that doesn't include God of the Bible, nor does their philosophy consider Satan the enemy of our souls, nor do they teach the gospel, nor do they handle how to deal with the sinful nature, nor do they counsel from God's word, and we're going to send our people to them? For the most serious of problems like marriage, fear, worry, depression, etc., we're going to send them to the secular psychologist? Our sufficiency is found in God's word, and we either believe it or we don't by how we live our lives. And we believe that is our responsibility to counsel one another with the word of God. The most qualified to counsel are those who are passionate about Christ and are, who know the scriptures. Those are the ones who are supposed to be counseling. Those are the people we send our people to those that know the word of God. So what are some examples of maybe psychology contradicting God's word? I just want to give two quick examples here. The first example, psychology tells us in marriage that we are called to meet each other's needs. In marriage, this idea assumes that we are somewhat dependent on our spouse to be healthy ourselves. Does that sound right? Because I think I've heard a lot of churches say the same thing because they follow psychology. Scripture tells us that our spouse is not our needs meter at all, but Scripture says that Christ is our sufficiency alone. It's not my spouse. We could turn the passages all over Scripture, but I'll just look at one real quick, 1 Peter 1.3. You can just jot that down, 1 Peter 1.3, and it says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Scripture reminds us that Christ is the one who meets our every need, not my spouse. I really put my wife in a bad situation when I look at her and expect her to do what only God can do. Or we could turn to another familiar passage like Ephesians 2.8. You can just jot that down again. Ephesians 2.8, which says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift from God. We begin to recognize we don't deserve anything from God or anyone else, including our spouse. If we got what we deserved, what would we get? Hell, right? Scripture teaches that we deserve nothing more than hell, right? But that's not how God works. He is so graceful because thanks be to Christ, he has given us his grace, right? We get what we don't deserve. Grace helps us not to control our spouse or have wrong expectations on them. The second example that psychology contradicts the Bible is that many espouse with a psychological worldview as they call addictions like alcoholism or pornography a disease instead of sin. 
scripturally, the word alcoholic is not even in the Bible, right? So what, how, how do we handle modern terms that aren't even found in the word of God? Well, we know that an alcoholic would be equivalent to a drinker or a drunkard in the word of God. And addictions aren't new, right? They have been prevalent since the first century until now. They, have, they may have new names for the same old problems, so we must define our problems of life through the lens, through the filter of God's holy, inerrant, infallible words. So we could turn to a passage. Why don't we turn there? To turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Paul's talking to the church at Corinth that had all sorts of problems. They were struggling in every area you can imagine, plunging deep into sin. No different than churches today. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, no men who, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the revilers, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Scripture tells us that God is not sending people to hell for a disease. But he's sending people to hell because they live unrepentant, sinful lifestyles. That's why people go to hell. How well can we speak truth to those who are psychologized? This is what it means to counsel biblically, to use the word of God with skill and precision. So another question we would ask is, how often are we in the word of God? How often are we reading the word of God? How well... Can we actually counsel somebody if we don't know the word of God ourselves and we don't spend any time in it? The sword is not decoration piece for us to set on the shelf or the mantle or the coffee table to collect dust. No, the goal of the word of God is to live it out, read it, study it, wrestle in it, meditate on it, memorize it. Why? Because we are zealous for Christ. We're here to live for Christ, live for God. That's why the first century Christians gave up their lives. We're called to do the same today. Do we know the word of God? Are we familiar in the word of God? Are we students of scripture? Point number three says we must be in the word daily. Point number three says we must be in the word daily. D.L. Moody once said, the Bible will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the Bible. Let me read that again. The Bible will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the Bible. Are we like David who said, your word have I hidden deep in my heart? Are we hungering and thirsting for righteousness which is found in the word of God. It seems to me 
in our Christian society, it's okay not to really pray or read God's word regularly. It's almost sort of cool. The legalism word pops up quickly when we start using words like being disciplined or scheduling time to study and read God's word. But let me ask us this question then. If we aren't in the word of God daily, who are we depending on, God or self? Self. It's evident, it's obvious. Jesus himself depended on the word of God when he combated Satan. And yet many today have this nonchalant attitude that they can make it without God's word. They can use their own wisdom to figure things out. I wonder if many are deceived, maybe a little arrogant or prideful to think they can make wise decisions without being saturated and guided by the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit. Turn with me to Hebrews 12, 4. Hebrews 12, 4. A very familiar passage speaking of the Word of God. Hebrews 12, 4 says this. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged or two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Bible, this is the Word of God, is living and active, able to cut deeply into our hearts. Do we believe wholeheartedly this morning that what Hebrews 12.4 communicates about the awesome power of the Word of God? The Holy Spirit uses the Word of God like a sword to penetrate, to pierce the hardest, the coldest, the darkest of hearts. It has such power that it reaches people like you and me. What are the words of amazing grace? Now, Luke, do you want to come up and sing them? No, okay. Um, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. There is nothing else in all the world that has such power that can transform wretches into saints. Which leads to point number four. We're transformed by the word of God. Point number four says we are transformed by the word of God. Have we experienced the transforming work of God's word this morning? Are we reading God's word daily? Does it translate into life? transformation are we leaning on scripture to deal with our own heart issues this morning what about when we're in crisis are we depending on god's word turn with me to james 1 22 through 24 james 1 22 through 24 This is a general epistle to to the churches, to all the churches in the area. And James says this in verse 22 through 24. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. 
So James compares someone who listens to the word of God and does not apply it to their lives. And he compares them to one who looks intently in the mirror. They really see how they're looking. They check all the angles. They're looking at their face. They're checking out, is their nose too big or different things like that. They're really looking at themselves though, right? And he says that when they walk away instantly, they forget what they look like. They even try to picture Okay, what did I look like? They can't remember. They totally forget. So I ask you, church, was James saying that the first century Christians struggled to retain God's word because they struggled with amnesia? Or did they have short-term memory loss? No, it wasn't that. It was that they actually, it wasn't that they actually forgot what they heard. It was that they were not putting God's word into practice. They didn't apply the message to themselves. They got into a habit of listening to the message and say, wow, that was a great message and critique how the pastor did and what he said here and what was there. But then walked out the door of the service and didn't live it out in their lives. And 2,000 years later, we struggle to counsel and apply God's word to our own lives. But let's go back to James, and I want to read verse 25, so the next passage to where we just were. So verse 25, so James 1, verse 25, well, where we're going to learn how to listen and apply God's word. James 1.25 says, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing, the ESV says. So we get this picture of a person, well, let me go back a little bit here, because the word for perseveres in this section, I better explain this, this verse, this word persevere that's in the English can be translated in the Greek, and it can also mean abides or remains. So we could say it this way, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, the one who perseveres or abides or remains in God's word, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So we get this picture of a person persevering, abiding, remaining in God's word as they live life. Whatever marital issues they're facing, whatever parenting struggles they're going through, whatever they face personally, they're abiding. They're remaining steadfast in the word of God. You get this picture of a person that's in a storm and they're walking forward and they're being, the wind's trying to blow them, the rain's hitting them hard, but they're persevering they're going straight forward to where they need to be that's what you get with the person here are we remaining and abiding in God's word this morning in conclusion James tells us that the doer the one who lives out the Bible he will be blessed in whatever he does are we doers of the word Are we practicing God's word? Are we living out the scriptures? That's what we're called to do as believers. If I told you I struggled with fear, how would you counsel me biblically? What if you were told by a dear friend that they struggled with an addiction? How would you counsel them from God's word? 
What if someone from the congregation came to you and said, they need some help because they get depressed? How would you counsel them from Scripture? God's Word tells us in 1 Peter 3.15, you can just jot it down, in our hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. We are called, church, to be skillful, precise, accurate, prepared to use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We are called to counsel one another biblically. May the family church be Christ-centered community rooted in God's Word. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we praise you. We honor you, Father. We thank you for your inerrant, infallible word, Father, that allows us to see life. But more than that, we see Christ at the center of your word. That's what makes it so powerful. It's about a person. It's not just about a rules and regulations, Father. We thank you for the Redeemer Christ, for what he has done for us. We thank you for your word that speaks to all issues of life. Help us to be more astute to wrestle and work and spend time and pour over the word of God. Help us to be faithful to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.